Chapter Three of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Three The Struggle for Life. Then I was alone. Around me only the wood of eternally green cedars covered with snow, the bare bushes, the frozen river, and, as far as I could see out through the branches and the trunks of the trees, only the great ocean of cedars and snow. Tiberian taiga! How long shall I be forced to live here? Will the Bolsheviki find me here or not? Will my friends know where I am? What is happening to my family? These questions were constantly as burning fires in my brain. Soon I understood why Ivan guided me so long. We passed many secluded places on the journey, far away from all people, where Ivan could have safely left me, but he always said that he would take me to a place where it would be easier to live. And it was so. The charm of my lone refuge was in the cedar wood and in the mountains covered with these forests, which stretched to every horizon. The cedar is a splendid, powerful tree with wide-spreading branches, an eternally green tent, attracting to its shelter every living being. Among the cedars was always effervescent life. There the squirrels were continually kicking up a row, jumping from tree to tree. The nut-jobbers cried shrilly. A flock of bullfinches with carmine breasts swept through the trees like a flame or a small army of goldfinches broke in and filled the amphitheatre of trees with their whistling. A hare scooted from one tree trunk to another, and behind him stole up the hardly visible shadow of a white ermine crawling on the snow, and I watched for a long time the black spot which I knew to be the tip of his tail. Carefully treading the hard-crusted snow approached a noble deer. At last there visited me from the top of the mountain the king of the Siberian forest, the brown bear. All this distracted me and carried away the black thoughts from my brain, encouraging me to persevere. It was good for me also, though difficult, to climb to the top of my mountain, which reached up out of the forest and from which I could look away to the range of red on the horizon. It was the red cliff on the farther bank of the Yenisei. There lay the country, the towns, the enemies and the friends, and there was even the point which I located as the place of my family. It was the reason why Ivan had guided me here, and as the days in this solitude slipped by, I began to miss sorely this companion who, though the murderer of Gavronsky, had taken care of me like a father, always saddling my horse for me, cutting the wood and doing everything to make me comfortable. He had spent many winters alone with nothing except his thoughts, face to face with nature, I should say, before the face of God. He had tried the horrors of solitude and had acquired facility in bearing them. I thought sometimes, if I had to meet my end in this place, that I would spend my last strength to drag myself to the top of the mountain to die there, looking away over the infinite sea of mountains and forest toward the point where my loved ones were. However, the same life gave me much matter for reflection, and yet more occupation for the physical side. 
It was a continuous struggle for existence, hard and severe. The hardest work was the preparation of the big logs for the naida. The fallen trunks of the trees were covered with snow and frozen to the ground. I was forced to dig them out, and afterwards, with the help of a long stick as a lever, to move them away from their place. For facilitating this work I chose the mountain for my supplies, where, although difficult to climb, it was easy to roll the logs down. Soon I made a splendid discovery. I found near my den a great quantity of larch, this beautiful yet sad forest giant, fallen during a big storm. The trunks were covered with snow, but remained attached to their stumps, where they had broken off. When I cut into these stumps with the axe, the head buried itself, and could with difficulty be drawn, and, investigating the reason, I found them filled with pitch. Chips of this wood needed only a spark to set them aflame, and ever afterward I always had a stock of them to light up quickly, for warming my hands on returning from the hunt, or for boiling my tea. The greater part of my days was occupied with the hunt. I came to understand that I must distribute my work over every day, for it distracted me from my sad and depressing thoughts. Generally, after my morning tea, I went into the forest to seek heathcock or blackcock. After killing one or two I began to prepare my dinner, which never had an extensive menu. It was constantly game soup, with a handful of dried bread, and afterwards endless cups of tea, this essential beverage of the woods. Once, during my search for birds, I heard a rustle in the dense shrubs, and, carefully peering about, I discovered the points of a deer's horns. I crawled along toward the spot, but the watchful animal heard my approach. With a great noise he rushed from the bush, and I saw him very clearly, after he had run about three hundred steps, stop on the slope of the mountain. It was a splendid animal with dark grey coat, with almost a black spine and as large as a small cow. I laid my rifle across a branch and fired. The animal made a great leap, ran several steps, and fell. With all my strength I ran to him, but he got up again and half-jumped, half-dragged himself up the mountain. The second shot stopped him. I had won a warm carpet for my den and a large stock of meat. The horns I fastened up among the branches of my wall, where they made a fine hat-rack. I cannot forget one very interesting but wild picture, which was staged for me several kilometres from my den. There was a small swamp covered with grass and cranberries scattered through it, where the blackcock and sand partridges usually came to feed on the berries. I approached noiselessly behind the bushes, and saw a whole flock of blackcock scratching in the snow and picking out the berries. While I was surveying this scene, suddenly one of the blackcock jumped up, and the rest of the frightened flock immediately flew away. To my astonishment, the first bird began going straight up in a spiral flight, and afterwards dropping directly down dead. When I approached, there sprang from the body of the slain cock a rapacious ermine that hid under the trunk of a fallen tree. The bird's neck was badly torn. I then understood that the ermine had charged the cock, fastened itself on his neck, and had been carried by the bird into the air, as he sucked the blood from its throat, and had been the cause of the heavy fall back to the earth. 
thanks to his aeronautic ability, I saved one cartridge. So I lived, fighting for the morrow, and more and more poisoned by hard and bitter thoughts. The days and weeks passed, and soon I felt the breath of warmer winds. On the open places the snow began to thaw. In spots the little rivulets of water appeared. Another day I saw a fly or a spider awakened after the hard winter. The spring was coming. I realized that in spring it was impossible to go out from the forest. Every river overflowed its banks. The swamps became impassable. All the runways of the animals turned into beds for streams of running water. I understood that until summer I was condemned to a continuation of my solitude. Spring very quickly came into her rights, and soon my mountain was free from snow and was covered only with stones, the trunks of birch and aspen trees, and the high cones of anthills. The river in places broke its covering of ice, and was coursing full with foam and bubbles. End of chapter.